Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories. No warn that tyranny is always lurking just around the corners. You should reject these voices. You are free to do as we tell you. You are free to do as we tell you. But I want to say one thing to the American people. It's a big club. And you ain't in it. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. Outrageous conspiracy theories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next Beard World Order. I am your co-host, Guillermo Jimenez, joined as always by James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and Tom Secker of SpyCulture.com. Fellas, how are we doing today? Excellent. Couldn't be better. <laughs> Good to hear. Tom, how are you doing, man? <laughs> Probably better than James is in reality. <laughs> well, in case you guys haven't noticed, we are trying a little something different uh, today. We're recording video for the first time. Uh, for this podcast, so you'll now have the option to either download the audio uh, uh, podcast on iTunes and on our respective websites, or uh, watch it on YouTube. So, uh, without any further ado, uh, let's let's get started here. I wanted to talk about kind of pick up where we left off last time. You know, the last time we we got together last month uh, for the first uh, Beard World Order podcast, we were talking about uh, conspiracy. We we're talking about. Uh, Basically, the, the truth movement in, in some ways has uh, jumped the shark, so to speak. It has uh, uh, sort of begun to, uh, you, know, really, you know, we talked about the many ways that the challenge is present currently with the way it's developed, with the fact that, you know, just about anything could be a conspiracy these days. But we left off on, or we, at least we introduced the, the subject of, of meta conspiracy, of the conspiracy to inject conspiracy. So I did want to get uh, y'all's thoughts on that. Uh, for example, uh, we know that the NSA and uh, private intelligence companies uh, do this on the Internet already, you know, through sock puppet accounts and things like this. Um, so, again, your thoughts on this generally. Uh, does this activity present any unique challenges uh, to either – uh, the so-called truth movement, or just broadly speaking, uh, investigative work online, uh, activism, alt media, things like this. Is it really any different than, say, uh, what other intelligence agencies have already done, like the FBI in the real world, trying to discredit uh, activists and things like that? So uh, either one of you, whoever wants to take this first, go ahead and jump right in. Well, I'll, I'll just say first up that you're exactly right with that line of thinking. That was exactly what I was going to talk about because it was the uh, the FBI with COINTELPRO that really was pioneering the snitch jacketing. And that was, I mean, half a century ago. Um, the idea that you discredit people in a movement by by floating rumors. Oh, I think they're part, they're, they must be working for the FBI. They must be working for the CIA, whatever it is, and uh, to discredit them. And so, yes, the, you implant the idea of the conspiracy and, uh, and this person's working for the conspiracy and that undermines everything that they do. And it's an exceptionally effective tactic and we'd be naive to think that that doesn't go on today. Um, especially because I always go back to, to what Tom said in one of our conversations some somewhere way back in the day, um, where he was talking about the Cass Sunstein um, cognitive yeah. infiltration paper, which, I mean, just just the idea that it is implanted in the truth community th that uh, that uh, there are these cognitive infiltrators 
is in itself quite effective at undermining a lot of the work that people do because now everyone looks at everyone else and says you don't agree with me you're a cognitive <laughs> infiltrator so uh so it has been probably remarkably effective just in terms of being a paper that's become the sort of touchstone for a lot of conspiracy theorists so um so i Great found point. that all quite interesting so even if they're not actually doing it, the thought that they could be doing it is enough to muddy the water, so to speak. Uh, Tom, your, your thoughts on that, man? Well, I think James is right, because the point that I tried to make about Cass Sunstein's paper is that it's not just that he's talking about cognitive infiltration. You're right, that in itself, putting that idea out there in such a public format, already starts to... Uh, raise people's suspicions and gets, pe gets people's backs up and what have you. But he also said that the particular type of infiltration that they were going to use was, rather than what James was talking about with the F what the FBI were doing decades ago, I think they've got a bit more sophisticated because what Sunstein said was, let's go into these kind of uh, either real-world meetings or internet forums or whatever, and let's cast doubt on conspiracy theories. Let's try and sort of have the pretense of having a reasonable discussion about it, a sceptical discussion about it, and presumably this is sceptical in the sort of James Randi sense of the word. Um, and so what that means is that people in these sorts of forums, whether real or, or internet, whenever someone turns up and starts saying, well, hang on a second, I mean, how much evidence do we really have here? How much, you know, logical interpretation have we actually developed here? They, they are going to go, oh, this is a, a Cass Sunstein-style infiltrator. <laughs> and the answer to this is to become more dogmatic and to become more sort of self-righteous in what we believe and jump to conclusions even more quickly. And so that is ultimately what I think his paper was presumably designed to do. Excellent point. And this is, again, along the same lines as the stuff that we've been talking about already throughout our, our conversations in the past. Uh, that idea, I think, is very important to focus on because it is important to be critical uh, of ourselves and of our quote unquote movement. I, I don't like to use terms like this, but for, you know, generally speaking, uh, alt media in general, it's, it's important to be critical because, uh, you know, a quick example. Just the other day, a couple of days ago, we had another mass shooter event in the States. You guys may have heard of it, right? Another uh, at Fort Hood. And uh, as to be expected, you know, it's, it's, it is expected. It's never any less disappointing. I'll put it that way. When, when something like this happens, inevitably, nowadays, uh, you will see a massive torrent almost immediately calling this a, uh, a false flag. It's, it's, it's clearly some kind of false flag because nothing, you know, ever like, like this ever happens genuinely in the real world. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's, oh, it's been disturbing. We've talked about this before. It's something that I, that I, I, I don't like, I guess I shouldn't harp on it, but it's just something that really, I, I keep noticing it. And as I said, it's nothing new. It's something that I've noticed for quite some time now, but it's never any less disappointing that this happens. So, um, and, but yeah, it, that idea, as you mentioned, both of you now that, uh, there are, you know, cognitive infiltrators out there. There are, you know, disinfo agents out there. So it, the, the fact that that idea is out there makes this stuff very difficult to explore, discuss, uh, you know, counter-argue and whatnot because, you know, then accusations get tossed around willy-nilly. Uh, and so I guess we shouldn't worry about that so much. I guess it's just important to acknowledge it, that that's uh, something that's happening and try to move from it, uh, you know, build, uh, you know be, be better for it. Um, along those same lines, though, this is almost a, a pretty – that's a pretty good transition to what – 
I wanted to discuss with you guys. I know, James, you saw this. Uh, I'm wondering if, if, Tom, that you got this link also about uh, the, the latest polls that have been released here in the States uh, as a result of these NSA leaks. I think this, this goes right in line with what we're talking about with sort of uh, consciousness shifting, uh, perceptions shifting as a result of things you know, being put out there uh, through the media. And uh, so we, we've talked about this before. We sort of saw this coming. We talked about how we felt that there was a danger in this information changing people, and not in a good way, uh, that people would, would adjust their behavior accordingly to the knowledge that they're being uh, surveilled constantly. And in fact, we know this is happening now. We have it in black and white, as, as you were saying earlier, James. We have an article a couple of articles, but I'll throw these out. I'll put them in the show notes, then I want to get uh, your take on this, Tom. Uh, so an article out of The Hill, many say NSA News changed their behavior. Uh, another article out of Warrantless.org, did, how did Snowden change search behavior? New research shows more than you might think. Uh, also a Washington Post article, Americans say they're shopping less online, blame the NSA. And they're, they're all basically, with, with the exception of the Warrantless.org, they're talking about this new poll out of a Harris Interactive Survey, which shows you know, there are large numbers of people now that are changing their behavior online as a result of the knowledge that they're being uh, surveilled. The, the warrantless.org article talks about a, a separate study that looks like Google searches. So people are so paranoid that their Google searches are being mined that they're not searching for what they call uh, privacy-sensitive terms. So, yeah, anyway, your, your thoughts on this, Tom? Well, I mean, the thing that, that really struck me when I was reading this was what they defined as uh, privacy-sensitive terms. It was all the sort of, I mean, I get it. If you're searching for something like Viagra, that might be a bit embarrassing <laughs> if that's all being recorded somewhere and you've, you've, you think that at some point this might actually be released to the public and people might find out that you bought Viagra online. And I must say, don't buy your Viagra online. It's <laughs> not a good idea. Um, <laughs> If you're do you do want it. do you want to buy that in person either? I don't know. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> go to, go, go on the I'm Silk Road saying. and buy it anonymously through Bitcoin or something. Yeah, that's the way you want to do it. I don't know. <laughs> what are you encouraging people? To I am just that. I'm just saying. Um, but but what struck me about this is that they were they were defining it quite narrowly. They were defining it. I can understand why they would look at that sort of a thing, of course, but. What I wonder about is, what are the other things that people are no longer searching for? What kind of impact has this mm. had on, you know, like the people who, who listen to our shows and watch our shows, um, or themselves are, are sort of media activists or whatever you want to call us? Um, is it making a difference to them in terms of, I don't know, how, uh, if you like, how blunt they are in their searching and how direct and specific they are in their searching, or whether they're now just deferring to... I don't know, um, sticking to RSS feeds and just following a few websites to keep up to date with whatever, rather than actively going out and looking for material themselves. I'd be very interested to see if there was any kind of information on that. And obviously that wasn't in their study, and I'm not particularly criticizing them for that. But that's what would really interest me, because I have a feeling there would be a similar effect along those lines. I mean, what about you, James? I assume there would be a similar effect, and that's very hard to quantify if it's even quantifiable at all um, in some respects, because how do you know what people aren't searching for? Um, do they even know themselves consciously? But uh, just as one trivial example of that, I just uh, tweeted up uh, the uh, story about USAID creating a fake 
Twitter mobile <laughs> yeah, platform Cuba. in Cuba to try to incite <laughs> revolution. Just a crazy story. And yeah. I got a tweet back in response. This is troubling. I am uncomfortable simply replying to this tweet. Thanks for the link. There you so, go. Um, so that's someone who obviously overcame that demon and did reply. But, uh, <laughs> but how many people didn't, right? Um, it is, yeah. I mean, it's an open question how it's affecting our behavior. And I'm not even sure we're all conscious of that. And I would say it hasn't really affected my behavior because I already already knew, uh, at least to some extent, what the NSA was doing before this. So I was always already using uh, StartPage, and I was already covering up my webcam monitor and things when I wasn't using it. I mean, things like that. And it was funny because that was a, a comment that I consistently received in, the, uh, in my video comments or directly through my email um, back in the day when, uh, when I used to, to feature that more, more often. Uh, where you could see my webcam covered up in the background of my videos, and people would always write me, why do you cover up your webcam? <laughs> I, I'm, I don't get that question anymore, oddly right. enough. Um, but, uh, but again, I think it's just... A, and in fact, on, a, on an interesting note, even my, even my parents or my dad does that now. Um, when I Skype him, uh, it used to be just I'd get his web webcam when he turned it on. But now he has to uncover it because he covers it up. So, I mean, it's, it's spread to everyone. I mean, if my dad's doing it, uh, everyone's doing it. So, <laughs> so it's interesting to see this really is filtering down. And to a certain extent, maybe it's good if we are taking basic precautions that we should have been taking in the first place. But, of course, it's the question, how does this modify our behavior? And again, I think that's a question we can't necessarily quantify in a in a in any real sense that we can only get a sort of vague outline of that yeah. and it's a question of how honest we're even going to be with ourselves about well did i search that or did or did i hold myself back from searching that because of the nsa i mean is it is it always that explicitly conscious a, a decision that we make or is it just something that in general we think oh, i'm not going to go there and then just you know sweep it under the rug yeah, that's a good point. And I think it is difficult to quantify, at least certainly uh, so soon uh, after, you know, we're just now observing some of these effects. Um, but uh, but that's interesting. Just the, both of these topics, I think, again, just talk, talking about uh, these these sort of bigger issues or thinking a little bigger, thinking about thinking about thinking, basically, how we're being affected uh, in our behaviors because of what's being put out there, either, you know, the idea of cognitive infiltration or the idea of, of, of your privacy no longer being uh, respected on the Internet. And something that I was going to ask you, you brought up StarPage, which is something I was going to ask you about anyway, because this, we've, we've talked about this before, but I, had, I was thinking about it more recently, uh, you know, should we begin to, which I think we should, obviously, but should we begin to, to you know, stop using things like uh, Google and start using StartPage, things like that? Uh, should we uh, be more conscious of, of our security online, more conscious of uh, encryption, stuff like that? And now I bring this up because, you know, in our previous conversation, you know, even though I think it's prudent generally to do stuff like that. Like, you know, I, I run uh, NoScript, for example, on my Firefox browser as, as a, a one quick and easy thing that everyone can do to sort of, you know, help in that regard. But um, we talked about this last time. Tom, you made an excellent point. And in fact, I, I, you know, uh, I, I was thinking about it more and I wrote about it recently in an article, to, uh, in sort of a response to uh, Snowden's presentation in South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Um, because his whole presentation, and I understand that it's a technology-based uh, uh, you know, presentation. He's a tech guy by trade. So I, I get that the focus was on technology. But what, what I found disturbing 
was that just generally speaking, outside of this talk, just generally speaking, uh, he has focused mainly on talking about things like encryption, talking about how uh, it's important to sort of fight back in that way. Uh, you know, take care of your what you can do online to to not be surveilled and things like that, or make it more difficult for the NSA uh, to to data mine you or what have you. But um, I do think there's a danger in that line of thinking, as as Tom pointed out, and I included in the in the article because I do, I do think that if you focus on that, it can create this sort of cat and mouse game with the Feds. It does sort of perpetuate. You know that that same sort of line of thinking that we know it's happening now. I to do something about it, and it sort of it just keeps it. It's a cycle that that that, that gets created and continues. Rather than saying this shouldn't be happening, I will not adjust my behavior because you shouldn't be doing this to me. Uh, and 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 doing that collectively, you know, putting our collective voices out there and and, and making this happen, and, and and not allowing this to happen, as opposed to adjusting to it, you know, because yeah, then it becomes a sort of like. You know, are we just going to do this? Like, you know, we're just going to like cover our tracks online uh, from now on all the time. Do we have to live in that world? Is what I'm trying to ask because some people think we do. (laughs) I included this article in an email that I sent both of you, uh, which is uh, the co uh, co founder of Wired uh, seems to think that uh, this is the world uh, that is inevitable. Uh, he wrote. He wrote, the title of his piece is "Why You Should Embrace Surveillance, Not Fight It," and he he advocates what he calls a peaceful covalence. So we have to accept. This is what he says. We have to accept the fact that the state or these private intelligence companies are going to engage in surveillance, and the best we can hope for is to turn the camera around, so to speak, and watch them, watch the watchers as well as the watchers watching us. Right. So. Your thoughts on this stuff, uh, I guess, well, Tom, your thoughts, and then I'll go to James here. I mean, sure. I, I read that article. The thing that bothers me about this is that, well, it's kind of twofold. Uh, it's firstly what me and James were talking about in our conversation for clandestine that we did a, a, about a week or so ago, is that there's this notion that we can reform this, that somehow this is something that we can kind of get a grip on. And let's be realistic here. What we're talking about in terms of this mass mass surveillance is institutionalized, paranoid voyeurism. (laughs) That's what is actually we're we're trying to confront here, I think. How do you reform that? Is it even realistic to think that you can reform that? I just, I kind of think that's a joke. And anyone that is kind of believing that is not identifying what the problem is and what the enemy is. I think that's fundamentally what's going wrong there is they don't recognize what's actually going on here. And so they come out with this tripe about, you know, oh, there's too much mass surveillance, but, you know, the war on terror is real and the threats are all real, so we have to keep having all the spying and surveillance and blah, 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 blah. But the thing about um, what this guy in, in the Wired article was coming out with is this idea that the answer to this is that we participate in the voyeurism. <laughs> what? Is he, is he fucking serious? So I've got to spend, yeah. yeah, I've got to spend <laughs> my time spying on other people. I don't want to spend my time spying on other people. Frankly, this is one of the reasons why I want, you know, the abolition of the security services is so I could spend my time doing something slightly more kind of peaceful <laughs> in my life. You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I already spend too much of my time watching The Watchmen. I don't want to have to spend even more time watching The Watchmen because this guy at Wired thinks I should. So... And, and what you were saying about this being a kind of cat and mouse race or, or you know, Tom and Jerry stuff, <laughs> what's the point here? That 
okay, so we start encrypting our emails. Well, what happens if we get a whistleblower in three years' time saying that, oh, well, that doesn't work because all that encryption's been busted, which it probably has anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we then have to try and find a sort of super-duper encryption that we then use. Oh, no, but then we find out that that's been busted. So, you know, where does this stop? Um, so from a practical point of view, I don't necessarily think that necessarily encrypting emails or using start page is all that effective. What it, I think its value is, is its symbolic value. It's a mm. way of saying, sod off. It's a way of saying, I'm not just going to tolerate this. Even if the action I'm taking is not necessarily that effective, at least I'm taking action and, like I say, holding up a symbol saying, I'm not going to just live with this. I mean, James, would you agree with this? I would. In fact, you kind of stole some of my thunder there because I was going to say something similar to in, in order to be contrarian. But uh, but yeah, I mean, my, my response would be to say that when I choose to use something like startpage.com, it is, in some ways, that is what I'm advocating. I'm saying that we should be actively seeking out those alternatives that at the very least are seriously thinking and talking about this and reflecting our values rather than going to a company like Google, which we know is in bed with the, the NSA, actively so. It's not a question of we should just be able to use Google because, you know, that should be our right. Um, it should be us <laughs> choosing to to use those outlets that at, at the very least are trying or, or thinking along our lines and us putting our time and energy and investing our, our resources and everything into those alternatives in order to build those up. And uh, I, I get the point. It's a cat and mouse game and technologically speaking, can we ever outwit them and all of that. But at any rate, I think it is sort of more about the choices that we're making in terms of what we can, you know, what we choose to invest our, 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 our resources in. And on the note of covalence, I certainly agree that the, the way that it's framed in this article is creepy and uh, everything to do with Minority Report is creepy. Um, <laughs> I, I've talked about it a lot, but just the, the, the Bible that they created in the making of that movie for the future and how everything in there is starting to already come true um yeah. is is creepy in itself and and for people who don't know the person who wrote this this article we're talking about was one of the people consulted on by steven spielberg um for the creation of that movie but uh but yes yeah, so the covalence idea and the way it's framed here is a bit uh, creepy and, and tiresome but on the other hand i did have a uh, edition of my podcast a while back on suvalence the idea not surveillance surveillance everyone <laughs> has a camera in their pocket use it to watch what the cops are doing etc and i agree if we make it into uh our mission or like we have to we have to be out there all the time you know with the cameras looking for bad behavior or whatever i agree that's a problem and 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 in the end really contributes to the underlying problem which is the voyeurism which is at the heart of this but having said that if we have the technology if it's in our pockets we should be using it when we can in the situations that we can in order to turn the uh, the gaze back on the on the people who are supposedly watching us and it has proven effective for some people in some very real situations where yeah. people would have went to jail or what have you if there wasn't someone there with a camera to uh, to make the cops honest or to, at least in the very end to make sure that uh, that they the, they couldn't have laid false charges or what have you so it it does have some utility some actual real world utility and uh, i agree it's not the solution but it's at least a stopgap solution yeah those are excellent points both of you just made and i think uh I think maybe the start page uh, was a bad example on my part because, I, I, as I said earlier, I do think that it's it's uh, 
it's, it's, we should at, very, at the very least be limiting our use of, of things that are provided by companies like Google and Facebook and so forth. If you can't outright just avoid it, which, you know, you know <laughs> I'm sympathetic to the idea that it's difficult because I use them myself, uh, as we've talked we're about before. We're all using it. So. Right. We're using Skype right now, as a matter of fact. So, um, but, but yeah, cer- certainly, I do think that that's, uh, I think it's, like, as, as Tom said, it's symbolic. As you said, James, there is some, some practicality in that as well. Uh, I guess my concern with, with the way it was presented, not just by this uh, co-founder of Wired, but in the way that I feel uh, Snowden has presented this argument uh, I think it's it, it's disturbing, and something that I just wanted to read very quickly that I included in that article was a written statement by Edward Snowden to the European Parliament. You guys may have seen this, and uh, I found it very disturbing. It, it's not a surprise. We've talked about this. You know, the man willingly worked voluntarily for the CIA, fucking NSA. You know, he, this is a guy who was paid handsomely to do it. Not a surprise that he feels this way, but for a lot of people out there who still consider this guy your hero – This is what he thinks. I worked for the United States Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency. I love my country, and I believe spying serves a vital purpose and must continue. That is the core of the problem. The idea that the surveillance state, the national security state, is a necessary evil. It isn't. I don't feel that it is. I know you guys would agree with that sentiment. And so I think that that is what's getting lost here. Uh, a lot of people aren't really looking at that. Again, looking, not looking at the core of the issue, looking at ways at dealing with symptoms rather than the disease, right? So that is uh, a point that I wanted to make. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But uh, on the subject of um, surveillance, actually, it's funny that you mentioned it because uh, I was doing a podcast recently with my buddy Danny Benavides, and he brought up your podcast on that topic because this came up, the idea of covalence. And I do feel that there's a difference there because, for example, I wrote, I wrote another piece recently on uh, body cameras. This is becoming really popular here in the States. Uh, police, uh, and I, I believe it's also uh, as popular in Europe now. I saw a couple of articles from the UK where, where police officers now are investing in these things. So the police want body cams. Uh, the ACLU think it's, thinks it's a great idea. They think that this will provide a check on their authority. As you said, James, uh, when you turn the camera on them, uh, typically it can work as a shield in your favor. Uh, It can uh, help to hold them accountable. But what I found disturbing about this new technology that's being rolled out to to these police departments is that I think a lot of civil libertarians out there are sort of missing the point. This is still the cops filming you. This is you filming the cops. The, 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 the video footage that will be captured from these body cameras is still centrally controlled by each police department. They can choose when to use it, when not to use it. Ooh, the camera malfunction. Oops. I guess we don't have that footage of us beating the shit out of you. Sorry. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's problematic. I feel like people aren't realizing that quite yet. And plus, uh, the, the study that they all refer to, that Rialto study that everyone refers to that says, hey, this is working fabulously. Uh, 80% of police uh, uh, complaints have gone down. Use of force has gone down by 60%. It works. It, it just works. I, I, they're not taking into account, I feel, the, the wear off, the eventual wear off effect when these police officers inevitably are not held accountable when they're not being convicted, when their behavior is not coming into question, then eventually they won't really care if they're on footage or not because it doesn't really matter. So 
Anyway, that's how I feel about that. Uh, maybe you guys can tell me what you think. <laughs> well, uh, just as you were speaking there, I was just looking up a, a Guardian article because I wanted to address the uh, the End Bulk Collection Act and how mm. it will potentially allow even more spying than than was allowed before that, which, again, I think was really the part of the snow job operation. The operative part is it not only institutionalizes it, but actually perhaps even expands um, the, leg the legality for what the NSA has been doing all along, which uh, is, uh, would, would have been a very difficult thing to do without having some whistleblower on the inside leaking the information in a dramatic way and making all this brouhaha. So I was looking this, uh, this article up to re-familiarize myself with the details, and then I saw in the related um, uh, articles in, on The Guardian here, the after-sex selfie is a betrayal of intimacy. <laughs> and so apparently there's a uh, trending hashtag on Twitter that I'm not even going to be able to stomach <laughs> looking up. Um, after-sex, where apparently the latest trend is to take pictures of you and your partner after-sex um, and to tweet them out to the not? world. Um, so if that isn't the clearest signal that we are probably in the vast minority here and <laughs> losing the battle... To be fair, I mean, there's a lot of media sensationalism, and media often picks up on little tiny things and makes them into a big trend when they're not, um, which, in fact, actually only perpetuates these little things and actually does make them into big trends, so we should be careful on that front. But I think, it, at the very least, the existence of this hashtag does at least somewhat uh, give some pause for thought about whether or not anyone takes privacy seriously at all anymore, or even understands why we need it at all. I mean, it's just, um, are, are we far enough along this path that it's already a lost cause? I would like to think not, but, uh, but I don't know if I hold out hope that there is a generation growing up that doesn't understand why the uh, after-sex hashtag is, is disturbing in and of itself. Well, and it's only a one small step from the after-sex hashtag to the, you know, during-sex hashtag. Right. And I would say if we hit that point... That's probably where I would then lose all hope. At this, <clears throat> at this stage, I think I do still have quite a lot of hope because I think that a lot of young people who... Okay, I get it. We're worried that people who never grew up in a world where there wasn't an internet, where there wasn't Facebook and Snapchat and all of these different things are not going to realise that they're losing something by spending so much of their lives engaging with this sort of software and with these sorts of apps or whatever. Um... But I also think sooner or later they've got to get bored of it. All of these things are pretty shallow uh, and pretty short-term kind of... Whatever it is that you're getting out of it, it's just a little short-term thrill. It's, oh, someone clicked like on my Facebook page. You know, ultimately, people are going to get sick of that. People are going to want more than that because people do want more than that. Um, and I think we are going to see probably not in the next few years, but maybe in the sort of 2020s, I'd hope, um, a kind of a, a revulsion against these things. I think we are going to see some kind of backlash, but it's just going to take a bit of time. Um, and it's going to take getting through to people what it is that they're losing by engaging with all this stuff and by spending their lives doing this and by sharing everything. Um, so I think... That, that's my reason to be optimistic, is, is that I think this stuff is kind of so naff that sooner or later people are going to get bored of it. You're going well, to have to translate that British slang for us. <laughs> <laughs> naff? Well, naff? I caught most of it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and is that N E F F? I don't I don't know what that is. <laughs> um. You know, I, I don't know. I'd like, to, I'd like to say that I am as optimistic as you are, Tom, uh, about this, but I'm not. <laughs> and, I, 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 yeah. and I don't like admitting it because uh, I, I want to be as optimistic as you are. I, I want to think that this can be defeated, if we should use language like this. I mean, if the, that, that I, that I, those ideas should be defeated. Um, and and look, to bring this back, I'll put, it th- I'll put it this way. I'll to bring it back to sort of a personal level i have a lot of friends who are having kids right i'm at that age where all my friends are having kids um and i want to get your thoughts on this shame being a being a, a you know a father yourself now uh, just recently have uh, becoming a father and i, I talk, we know we, we we talk about how you know how best we can you know uh, you know teach our kids you know our values and whatnot and one of the things that that obviously this is a very well known very well studied sort of phenomenon that when when children are exposed to a lot of uh, television, for example, or video games at a very young age. There's a lot of overstimulus uh, because of new media, because of television and mass media, things like that. And so they become desensitized to stimulus. It's difficult to focus on one thing. Louis C.K., one of my favorite comedians, has a great bit on this. They talks about how, you know, how is my six-year-old going to appreciate a fucking sunset when, you know, she's got so much stimulus coming in from the internet and from the computer, from television and, and so many different things, so that we do have this new generation coming up within this world, um, in this sort of mass media world, where they're being inundated with this stimulus. So I have to wonder whether or not that will ever happen, whether or not they will whether or not that will wear off, whether or not they will be bored by it or, or will just succumb to it completely. It's just, I don't know, honestly, but it's something to consider, I think. James, I, your thoughts I, on that? Yeah, well, I don't want to get um, too deeply into temporocentrism, but I really do think that what we're facing at this stage of the game is not just the difference in degree, but a difference in kind um, in terms of what's gone on before with the the cycle of generations and uh and you know oh the kids what are they up to these days oh <laughs> hell in a handbasket that's all you know i i understand right, right. that that every generation f- f- faces that and sees the next generation as the worst one that's ever been <laughs> but but having said that what we're i mean what we're facing now is is technologically so different from what's come before that i think we really are facing something that's that's potentially quite different um, in a stage of human development or regression, as it may be. And we are, I mean, it's funny, Tom, you said in the 2020s, and my first thought, I mean, just as a kind of humorous joke comment was, well, isn't that when the singularity is going to arrive? <laughs> I think it's 2029 is the date, isn't it? Um, and, you know, I joke about that. But to a certain extent, I mean, isn't this what it is trending toward? I, I, I'm not sure I, I agree or believe in the idea of the singularity per se, but I certainly do see that the the, the uh, exponential increase in advancement of technology is creating a situation that is scarcely comprehensible. And uh, again, it could be something that could be used for the good. I mean, technology can always be used for the good, but it can also obviously be used for the the advancement of of the tyrannical purposes of the would-be oligarchs. And I, I mean, again, I say this from the perspective of someone who's literally pinching himself every day because he's doing for a living something that would have been incomprehensible just a short time ago. 
Uh, so that's, a, I mean, I would say a positive part of this whole technological yeah. change. But of course, the flip side of this is that now, for example, you know, the NSA and DIA and whoever else can get learn the most intimate details of all of our lives and aggregate this data and put it into giant algorithms to help them predict the future and all of this sci-fi nightmare stuff. So it is, uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting time to be alive, but I don't know how much longer we'll be able to say that uh, before, um, you know, <laughs> They, they implement the Borgism of all of us and we become just, you know, technological uh, enslaved to the system. So, again, I don't know where to take that. It's just that I I really do... I, I mean, this isn't just another iteration of the uh, the old, the age-old, oh, those these kids today don't know what they're missing kind of thing. I think this is something that's truly of a different kind and we are facing... I mean, I don't know if it's going to be this generation or, or my son's generation or his... Uh, children's generation, but somewhere along the line, I think we are going to be run, rubbing up against that, uh, if not the singularity, at least something something like it. And are we going to sleepwalk straight into it? Right. And, you uh, know, real quick, uh, just to get, put cool. this out there, and then I, I want to get your thoughts on this, uh, Tom, but because like what you were saying just now, James, reminded me of the article that I also linked uh, was uh, Invasion of the Data Snatchers by Catherine Crump and, and, and Matthew Harwood. Uh, big data, the Internet of Things means the surveillance of everything. So, uh, and you, I would encourage everyone to read this. It's, it's quite, it's a quite disturbing. It'll send a chill down your spine for sure. Uh, I, I think anyway. At least it did mine. Uh, but uh, I think, which, just to your point earlier, Tom, about I mean, I think that there are certainly uh, a lot of companies out there that don't seem to think that people are going to get bored of this stuff anytime soon. That there's a lot of money being invested in this stuff, where everyone's home uh, is, is being connected, every appliance is being connected to the grid, so to speak. Uh, so, just wanted to throw that out there, and you know, your thoughts, Tom. Well. Uh... There's a lot of different points that you ju- you both just raised, and I'm kind of I want to contradict you. So I'm <laughs> please, <laughs> I will not stand As- for it. <laughs> well, I won't. No, um, <laughs> but I will sit comfortably As- for it. The, the, the technological <laughs> question. Okay, we've never faced this kind of technological change before, and this kind of technological availability before, but we've still faced mass technological change. In fact, we've faced mass technological change more or less continuously, at least in the Western world, for the last, what, 200 years, 300 years? We live in a constant state of cultural revolution by technology. So I think this is the latest iteration of that, and it is something that is beyond what we've seen before. I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that point. I would just try and put it in, in the context of the struggle with technology is something that precedes all of our lives. None of us are that old. Um, so this is something that's been going on for a long, long time anyway, and some successes have been won in that. None are coming to mind at this late hour, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you, you know the sorts of things I'm driving at here. Um, so I do, I do still think that sooner or later people are going to kind of, uh, not everyone by any means, and it may not be a mass movement, but people are going to get sick of this in just the same way that people have got sick of mainstream news and people are getting sick of mainstream popular culture and starting to look elsewhere for it. Okay, a lot of people are looking in the wrong places, but whatever. Um, the point is that desire is there, that recognition that this isn't right, that there's got to be something better than this, there's got to be something else out there than this certainly is there, and it is there in, if not a mass movement, at least in significant numbers. 
And so I think if we can, if we can find the right way to approach people and we can find the right way to talk to people about these things, we can conjure up the same attitude and the same effect with regards to consumer technology as we do have regards Fox News. I hope so, anyway. That's my, that's my thinking. That's my contradiction of what well, you just I, said. Yeah, well, I certainly share in that hope, and I think that that's part of what we're doing here today. I mean, clearly, we, would, we wouldn't be here if we didn't think we could affect something for the positive in this. Um, do you mind if I hijack this conversation? Because if we are talking no. about the conspiracy to implant conspiracy, I think we have to sure. talk at some point about Tom Secker's recent podcast, uh, clandestine podcast on fun with FOIA, which, yes. um, by the way, if you haven't heard, was an excellent uh, podcast. I do recommend it. It was one of those podcasts I was sitting there listening, and my first initial response was to go, damn, I should have put something like this together. Oh, and, <laughs> and then afterwards, I was like, oh, great, I don't have to do it now. So uh, I'll just direct people to it. Um, it put together some really insightful clips there of Tony Blair and some of the other psychopaths talking about FOIA. Uh, very, very well done. So I, I hope people will go and take a look at that. And of course, at the, uh, the, the, the FOIA requests that you talked about, and specifically the one that you managed to wrest from the, uh, the maw of the beast, um, there, uh, the list of films that the DOD has uh, cooperated with or cooperated in. Let's uh, well, first just tell us about that list, uh, where it came from and what it is. And then, and then I think we should talk a little bit about this and how it relates to the idea of conspiracy to implant conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, all I did basically was send an email. Well, no, that's not strictly true because you have to register on the DOD's FOIA website. But you just have to give them like your name and your address and your email address and things. And you have to tell them all this anyway in order to get a response. So I thought, stuff it. I'll just give them the information because hopefully I can get more, more useful information out of them than they're getting out of me. Um, and let's face it, if the DOD wants to know my address, they can find out my address. Um, so I just sort of thought, rather than... I've been working on this whole question of, uh, if you like, state-sponsored culture, false flag state-sponsored culture, for quite a while. And working case by case and film by film and thinking, oh, I wonder about this movie and then trying to do some deep internet research, trying to find connections between the, the people involved or, or to see if there's anyone's written any articles or done any other research onto this film or whatever. I thought, why not just ask them? I mean, the worst thing they can do is say no. The worst thing I've done is waste maybe 10 or 15 minutes of my time. So I just put in a request literally saying, I want a list of all films that the DOD has participated in the production of ever since you know in the since the existence of the dod and i can only assume someone must have requested this before because it came back in three days they just sent it back to me and it is literally a eight page seven or eight page list pdf file of films just um it's not great for research purposes because it's not in chronological order and the, they haven't arranged the names in alphabetical order or anything like that but nonetheless I don't think this has ever been released on the internet before, um, so I'm, I'm quite happy to have got it. And I really do hope people use this thing, because it's good to have this just as a kind of uh, a lump of raw data for people to go, oh, I wonder about this film, look on the list, see if it's on there, see if any other films by the same people are on there. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of a, a great kicking off point for people to start working on this. Um, and also just the sheer scale of it surprised me. I mean, I, know, I knew this had been going on for a while. I didn't realize it had been going on since, like, the 1910s. It's been going on for a century. Um, and I didn't realize it was hundreds and hundreds of films. I kind of suspected that. But 
this is confirmation of, of that. Uh, I don't know what else. <laughs> what else were you, were you thinking of me talking about, James? No, it, you know, it's it's. I'm sorry, I was going to say just real quick. I wanted to throw this out there because uh, I think you're right that the it is it was a quite surprising to start reading all of these uh, list of this list of movies. Some of them. Um, you can you can see how this works. I mean, Iron Man, yeah, I can see how the DOD would be involved in that. The Karate Kid Part Two, <laughs> what the fuck, man? What's, I want to I get your theory on this, Tom. Why is the DOD funding or in some way involved with the making of the Karate Kid Part Two? A classic, by the way. <laughs> well, so so is Ernest Saves Christmas, and for is some that on the list too? Oh, yeah, yeah, Ernest Saves I missed that one. Um, <laughs> that was the one where I, that's the one where I had my kind of what the fuck moment. <laughs> Um, I, th- I can only assume that they're trying to, they see something in these storylines whereby the, the characters and the way in which the character progresses throughout the narrative is somehow militaristic in a sort of broad sense of the word. Because I don't remember there being any appearance of the US military in Karate Kid 2. I don't think it was as explicit as that. So it must be more on a sort of value basis, a kind of moral basis, that they saw something in this story that they wanted to promote. I I can only guess at that. It really, it does baffle me, some of the films on this list, but it really does baffle me that they're on there. Some of them are really obvious, but some of them are, I never would have guessed in a million years. So... Well, I, yeah, I don't I, know what I, I'll try and figure it out. Right. Specifically on that <laughs> note, I was looking at some of these and thinking, I mean, we have to, I think, differentiate between movies that the DOD was actively and majorly participating in and clearly would have had some some sort of investment in, not just in a monetary sense or in terms of resources or deployment of, of assets or anything like that, but in terms of the narrative itself, as in mm. this will further our purposes i think that you know we have to differentiate between those types of movies and then movies where who knows in what tangential way they might have been you know asked to you know could we use this or could we you know consult on on that in a in a kind of tangential way that probably the dod didn't really care about and it didn't affect their their kind of image so they they were happy to do it i i mean that's the way i would read some of these um ridiculous ones that are in here um pet cemetery like i i don't understand <laughs> i don't get it i don't get it but but that's that's the way i would i would read it I, and i think we have to kind of differentiate that but i mean again obviously some of these are just so blatantly kind of you know commercials for the dod and then i'm sure that there are a lot of them uh, as you hear my son in the background i'm sure there are a lot of them that are not quite so blatantly militaristically um, implanting ideas in our heads, but at any rate, certainly are are kind of furthering the overall narrative agenda of the DoD, and and so I think we have to you know parse the list for what it's worth. But still, I mean, it is. I, I think you're right on the fact that just the sheer scale of it, the the eight pages, just a solid list of movie titles, um, is quite staggering to think you know that the DoD is so invested in Hollywood and so interested in what's going on there and so willing to help out. Um, there's, they're clearly getting something out of this deal. I mean, it's not just that... Well, <laughs> my son's really squealing <laughs> back there. I hope he's okay. It's not just that they're doing this for the fun of it. I mean, they're clearly getting yeah. something out of this. Um, well, they must... Yeah, yeah, they they must be. And and the other thing that, that I highlighted in my podcast that's worth repeating is that, remember, this is just the DOD. 
there are lots of other agencies that are involved in Hollywood or involved in television production or whatever. And I have put in requests to pretty much every agency you could think of. And obviously I'll post the results as they come in. So if you've got several films a year just with the DOD, well, what happens if we throw in the, the DEA, the CIA, the FBI? Are we talking about, you know, dozens of films a year being ultimately in some way produced with the cooperation of these agencies? Is that the scale that we're talking about? Because if that is, then how big as a percentage of the total Hollywood output has some kind of state sponsorship behind it? Just as the question, you know, that I, I sort of started with in this research years ago, how many of these terrorist attacks have state sponsorship behind them? It seems to be a similar kind of proportion, to be honest. Um, it seems to be a significant enough proportion that it's reasonable to say if it wasn't for this state sponsorship, then the whole dynamic of both terrorism and popular culture would look very different. Mm. Um, and there would be, you know, uh, the dynamics of power that result from these things and would, be, would look quite different. Have you put in a FOIA specifically for CIA-involved movies? Uh, no, because the problem is I have a lot of pending CIA FOIA requests, and oh. I've got to wait for a few weeks before I start Cancel them all and off. go to the movies, Tom. Yeah, we, we can't <laughs> possibly do it. You are, you are the only one who can do this. Um, yeah, yeah, no, but that, see, that would be an interesting CIA. list. <laughs> Perhaps that list would be even more apropos to the conspiracy to implant conspiracy, because obviously, I mean, something like Enemy of the State and the CIA's involvement in that, I mean, that's, it's just right there, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Hey, everybody, be paranoid. And there's going to be an NSA um, whistleblower named Edward who's going to tell you about how they're watching everything you do. And uh, sure enough, yeah, funny how sure that enough. works. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how that works, isn't it? And 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 I think you're right, Tom. I think it's not unfair to say probably most of what gets produced is in some way linked to one of these agencies. More than likely, if. I don't, just judging by, again, the scale of, and, and like you, I, you made a good point earlier, though, James, about, you know, we do have to differentiate between which ones are just kind of, you know, yeah, okay, we'll, you know, we'll sign off so you can use this tank or what have you. I don't know. Or, or a movie like Enemy of the State or a film like, uh, I don't know, Transformers that, that are very, very militaristic. Um, so, so, but yeah, I mean, that's, this is very fascinating stuff. Um, I'm glad that you did this. I'm Sorry, glad that you just, also... Just yeah. one thing before I forget. Are there any movies in here that you think the DoD did participate in that aren't on this list? Mm. Yes. Zero Dark Thirty. Right, yeah. right. Uh, on is the list Pearl Harbor on this list? Because I'm just looking for it. I didn't see it. No, yeah. I didn't see Pearl Harbor either. That's another one that I'm should be on the list. Yeah. For everything. I mean, you, just watching Pearl Harbor, how could yeah. they have made that film without DOD <laughs> participation? I mean, exactly. we don't even. So, this, this is probably isn't a complete list. No, no, it's just as complete a list as they were willing to give me. Yeah. Um, so, I yeah, why it would taking... include such obvious examples like a Pearl Harbor, like a Zero Dark Thirty. Like, I don't know, it's just well, something to think well, about. Well, Zero Dark Thirty, we already know about because yeah, we, I guess, so yeah. much stuff. we have sure. hundreds of of emails detailing all right, of this. Right. Why, why deny it? Exactly, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, possibly just an administrative error, but I don't tend to believe that. Um, one thing I will, though, say is you brought up the Transformers movies, and this is a interesting kind of little nugget. In the second Transformers movie, which I'm absolutely sure James hasn't seen, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, not missing much, uh, there is a character in the first Transformers movie who works for the government agency that's trying to sort of cover all this up. 
right? And in the second movie, he has been uh, recycled. He's been kicked out of that agency, and now he is a internet conspiracy theorist spreading the truth about the Transformers. He is basically the Alex Jones of the Transformers world. So there you have a character that we're supposed to sympathize with and that is a conspiracy theorist and is right about the conspiracy that he's theorizing about. And this is in a military-sponsored movie. So if you want to talk about conspiracy to implant conspiracy, there you go. It's right there in front of you. I just have to rush out and watch Transformers (laughs) 2. I want to mention this quickly also. I saw this link yesterday. I have not seen this film, but I saw a a, a uh, Reason.com article linking to an interview that the the directors of Captain America, the new Captain America movie, uh, Winter Soldier, I think it's called, uh, according to them, uh, and this is a, a spoiler alert, I guess. I haven't seen it either. It, this was ruined for me as well. I didn't really have any intention of watching it. But, you know, anyway, um, <laughs> apparently uh, one of the themes in the film has to do with uh, Barack Obama's kill list, that the disposition matrix uh, that is talked about in the movie. And the directors made it seem like um, they were introducing this as a sort of, uh, well, let's, not, let's, let's use the word adversarial, right? why not, right? Uh, as a sort of way to, to you know, shed light on this in a negative way. I have to wonder, though, whether or not they're being genuine in, in, in that sentiment. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe they do think that they're doing it, genuinely think that they're, they are uh, being adversarial and they're you know, confronting this important issue. But, you know, I have to wonder, what effect is that going to have generally in the mass uh, public, something to think about. And again, this is just, this is just a brand new movie that just came out uh, worth looking into. Um, you know, your thoughts on this, man? Or James, either one of you? Well, I, I would say that I, I, I share your position there, and I think that it's perfectly plausible that the filmmakers or whoever think that they are going against something by portraying it in a negative way. But honestly, I don't think that's the way that this this whole thing works. I think that the uh, the implement... The implant, uh, well, the implantation of ideas in our minds takes a strange form so that the first time we see something, even if it's presented in a bad way, it may be putting the idea in our mind in a certain way. And, uh, and uh, you know, the second, third, fourth time that starts to morph. And I think that can, over the course, I mean, it's not, it's not something that's done all at once, but I think over the course of time, it's something where we can be steered away from our original revulsion at a subject so i think it's extremely i mean it's a very delicate situation to think of how media can actually effectively oppose a certain idea because simply going against it um is not necessarily going to uh, implant the uh, the idea in the minds of the the viewers that this is a bad thing because you've subconsciously introduced it into their in, uh, uh, consciousness subconsciously introduced it into their consciousness yeah. that makes no sense but i hope you understand <laughs> what i'm trying to drive at yeah here. yeah yeah you're right. i think you're absolutely right james but the thing i uh, i would uh, i suppose the caveat i would add to that is that When you're talking about the first time that someone is introduced to an idea, a policy, a technology, a a product, whatever, um, yeah, if it's introduced as this is a potential evil or this is an evil, then it's only one little step after that to this is a necessary evil. This is, in fact, the evil that's necessary in order to do good. You you start, you know, it's, it's quite quick that they can get from that starting point to the almost outright acceptance and, and advocation of this. Um, but we, in the alternative media, we're not, on the whole, 
dealing with things where we're telling people stuff for the first time, I don't think. You might argue there's some exceptions to that, okay. Um, but on the whole, we are talking about things that people have already heard something about. Um, so we're never really in the position where we have to worry about accidentally introducing something that could then be co-opted and turned into some horrible necessary evil thing later. We have to focus on the emphasizing that it is bad, that it is an evil thing. But I think the most valuable thing that we can do and the most constructive and effective thing that we can do is after we denounce something as bad, let people know what we think is good what we actually stand for. And I don't think the alternative media does that as much as it should, um, or as much, or at least as much as it could. Um, that We spend a lot of, the, of our time shitting on things, to be honest, <laughs> and with a lot of justification. Right, so. Don't get me sure. wrong. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why that's not so effective and why that does lead to that sort of uh, fatigued approach that people have that James is talking about, where eventually they just sort of give up and say, oh, well, it's going to happen anyway. It's just normal. It's just it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, Rather than, you know, the, one of the things we can do to stave off that is to say, no, it's not inevitable, and there are alternatives, and there are people actually embracing these alternatives already. And James, you do quite a lot of good work on, on this front, so I'm certainly not going to criticise you for this, but there's plenty of others who could learn from that and who could do Yermo. more of it. Sorry. <laughs> I like shitting on things. What can I say? No, <laughs> I think you're right, though, Tom. I do think that there's, there isn't enough of that being done, although I do think that, that as, you, as you said, shitting on things, though, does, in a way, uh, help to counter that normalization effect that, for example, like the disposition matrix, the assassination program. Yeah, the alternative media didn't break that story that came out of, I think it was the Washington Post that initially uh, uh, broke that story, uh, you know, a sort of mainstream, mainline, you know, whatever uh, corporate media uh, outlet. Uh, but it is, I think it's the job of the mainstream, um, excuse me, the job of the alternative media, as you said, to highlight this stuff and to say, no. This isn't a necessary evil. The entire thing is bullshit. Its basis is bullshit. The war on terror is bullshit. And, and we need to keep you know, re-emphasizing that and expressing our outrage because if not, it does become normalized and it becomes a necessary evil that everyone just accepts. Having said that, I do think that we also need to do the other part of that, which is to say, okay, if this is not acceptable and this shouldn't be happening and we shouldn't be living this way, then how should we be living? How should we be interacting with, with each other in society and what sort of values should we hold? Uh, and perhaps, you know, uh, I, I, I know for sure that I don't do enough of that. I try when I can, but I don't do enough of it. I could do more of that, and uh, many of us could. So I think, I think you're right. Well, uh, well okay, I'll, I'll, let me say the most controversial sorry. thing of this entire conversation then, because I think you're exactly right. I think that there is the need for people to see someone reacting viscerally and angrily with outrage to the things that they should be outraged at in order to break the conditioning, the normalization process. And that's why I see that there is a value in people like Alex Jones, who reacts viscerally and angrily and outraged in, 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 in an over-the-top manner in a way that gets at least a certain segment of the population. I will certainly admit that there is a large segment that <laughs> maybe does not appreciate this in any way, but, but there is a segment of the population that can see that example of someone getting over-the-top outraged, and they might think, oh, that's just silly. But at the very least, that does help to implant the idea in people's minds that, you know, maybe this is something I should be outraged about. I mean, I think there is a value to, to, to that. I think the, the greater value is 
the emphasis on, well, what, what are we proposing? What is the solution? I really do think that that's more important in the long run. But at least as a step towards the, the breaking of that conditioning, I think it is important that, that people see people being outraged at things like this. Tom's going to disagree with you. Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> no, I mean, I, real quick, I want to say that, that I, I do think that that, that I, I see what you're saying, James, completely, that I, that is important. Uh, perhaps some more than others do their presentation may um, do the opposite of what they intend, let's say, uh, for some. But generally speaking, I agree. I suppose, I mean, my problem with Alex Jones is that he doesn't offer people much besides that. I suppose that would be my, that's my, my criticism. It's not that, it's not that he gets outraged. It's not that he gets angry and that he's bombastic and that he does these sometimes rather ridiculous things. I mean, he is a showman after all. He is a media man. That is how he makes his living. So I'm not going to particularly lay into him for that. My problem is, People get outraged. What do they then do? And Alex Jones doesn't offer them that much answer to that. What do they then do? Or certainly not compared to what I think I'm doing, what I think James has been doing for years, and what I think Guillermo does. What I, I think we do better at that simply, even if we're not doing it uh, literally and explicitly, we do it better by our example, by showing people that, yeah, you can get angry about this and that you can get pissed off at the bullshit and you should get, get pissed off at the bullshit, but then you should calm down again and think, what matters in my life and how can I advance something that matters in my life as a way of countering this bullshit? That's the step that tends to be missing from Alex Jones's shows and therefore tends to be missing from his audience, I've got to but say. from my super male problem. vitality for twenty nine ninety five or whatever you're yeah. talking this week. Yeah, okay. I mean, I agree with what you're saying there. Um, and, I, I, and I agree. I think that's the value that a lot of the, uh, the, the sort of, I guess, fringe of the alternative media can add to this conversation because it is, it is actually fairly easy to to just get outraged at these things. I mean, I think anyone can do that. And I still think that there's a value to that. But yes, as I say, I think the greater value is in presenting the, the, the ideas, the solutions, the alternatives. So Something that's what that, uh, we're here doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I, maybe not to go off on too much of a tangent. Uh, I know we've been, you know, we should be wrapping this up pretty soon. But um, what you what you just said, Tom and, and James, what you just uh, echoed there, it does remind me of, of things that we've discussed in the past, um, just speaking about alt media in general and the showmanship aspect, the show, I don't want to say fucking showbiz, but the, 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 the entertainment aspect of media. And there's, you know, no, I mean, there's no denying that, that those that are very uh, bombastic, as you say, are typically the most successful at, 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 at getting that attention in the audience. Now, one could make the argument that that is uh, okay and, and that's actually a good thing because by doing that, you are getting those huge numbers. You, you, you know, you act you know, however you're going to act. You attract the audience. Once they're there, you then you know, present the message that, that you feel is important to present. But I, you know, I, 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 that's not everyone's style. I don't like doing that. I know James doesn't do that. I know Tom, you don't do that. And so that just goes to show that when you don't go down that road, it is very difficult to, to, to you know, 
get your message out to as broad an audience as possible. And so, again, I, not to go off on a tangent, but it's just something that I've been thinking a lot about and talking a lot about, something that I, I consider, and uh, I think something that, that I think the audience uh, may appreciate also kind of just thinking about, uh, you know, uh, be more conscious of why it is you are attracted to maybe one message versus another. Is it the, the value inherent in that message, or is it the presentation that is driving you? one direction or the other. And I guess that could be said for just about anything, not just media, but a lot of the stuff we've been talking about already. That is actually a pretty good note to wrap things up on. But actually, just thinking about that in particular, <laughs> I did notice, for example, a comment on the, uh, I believe, the YouTube posting that Tom did of our previous conversation where someone was complaining that uh, that we spent five minutes talking about beards at the beginning <laughs> of the, the podcast. Oh, you guys just aren't serious enough. I, I prefer the way James presents this information, as if I wasn't a part of the conversation. Um, so, in an effort to to make sure that we differentiate ourselves and, and, and only have beardletarians on board, I think we should wrap up with some beard updates. And I have a couple for you. In fact, one from ABC Australia. Uh, bearded bands and facial hair appreciation clubs. The hairy-faced trend is back. Um, and it, it goes into some detail for this. I'd like to thank John out in the listening audience for supplying the link to that. I will uh, put it in the show notes so people can check it out. And one that I came across myself from uh, the CBC's The National, Beard Transplants. Apparently this is a, a new <laughs> craze that is sweeping the nation of Canada and presumably the world as the, uh, the beard trend takes off. And it starts with the memorable uh, uh, phrase, There's a beard. That's a beard. Beard, beard, yeah. So um, <laughs> I will definitely put the link in for that so people can watch it. It, it even includes the word hirsute, which is not in every uh, news broadcast. So definitely some vital watching there. And uh, let's not take ourselves too seriously here. No, no not at all. And one, one last quick one. I, this, this actually came across my news feed that I wanted to share as well on, on, the, on the topic of beards. Uh, and maybe not such a good story, but uh, uh, a little beard discrimination. I mean, it's something that we have to be aware of. I mean, come on. This is a big issue. Uh, U.S. government sues Philadelphia schools over beard policy. Uh, government, the U.S. government sued Philadelphia School District for religious discrimination on Wednesday for demanding that a veteran Muslim police officer trim his beard. We've got to do something about this, guys. <laughs> too much beard discrimination out there. I agree. I agree. I feel it every day. <laughs> you should try being me, James. I've had a beard since I was like 17. I thought you were going to say seven. <laughs> so that actually wouldn't surprise me. I could kind of see that. When I picture you as a youngster, I picture you as fully bearded. <laughs> I, I, there's nothing I can do. I cut it off. It just grows back. I mean, what... Well, well, that's, that's kind of what happens. Yeah. That's what generally what happens with hair, but not always. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. So, so with this beard transplant thing, does that mean you could sell your beard for transplant purposes? Uh, like you no, can sell I believe your... they're grafting from other places on the person's own body. It was like oh. taking hair from the back of the head in order to fill in parts of the beard. I, hmm. I don't know. It didn't. Could sound they do like it? So. Yep. The other do way. it the other way. Yeah, why not? You know, that's an idea. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have this uh, this scruffy beard hair on my head. I'm sure that would and look see, great. 
This is the benefit of, of doing video because that joke would not have worked if we were doing audio-only podcasts. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Which anyone listening to the audio of this on my website will be confused. <laughs> <laughs> Go check out the YouTube. Right, exactly. All right, guys. Well, I guess we'll wrap this one up for tonight or for today. Time difference, I forget. Um, come back. Join us next week on the Beard World Order. We'll be back here next month, a monthly podcast. Uh, check out uh, the podcast here on my site, tracesofreality.com. Check out James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, and Tom Secker, SpyCulture.com. Come back. Join us next week. Thanks for listening. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. Outrageous conspiracy theories. You should reject these voices. I want to say this to the television. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. You are free to do as we tell you. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooks. Well, I'm not a crook. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy of Beard World Order.